Thank you for listening to the Oppenheimer Let's Talk Future podcast series. Today's guest is Colin Rush, Managing Director and Senior Analyst of Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization, with our host, Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking. This series features our thought leaders who bring you timely and relevant insight about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. This episode was recorded on March 16, 2021. Please subscribe to our channel to instantly access previous podcasts and to receive notifications when new episodes become available. In today's market, electric vehicles, sustainability, renewables are all words with high favorability ratings. But the companies and innovators in this space are complicated, and they're reliant on many different variables, things like technological innovation, government subsidies, consumer demand, raw material accessibility for things like lithium, and of course, issues around affordability. So any one of these variables can seriously impact investment in this space. So that's why we're here in this latest episode called Electric Vehicles, Sustainability, Renewables, and the Road Ahead. Now, we did an episode covering some of these topics last year, but the market in these stocks has been so eventful and the news and the deal flow so prolific that we decided we needed to do another. So in this episode, we'll talk about matters important for investors to understand, infrastructure, solar, advances in solar storage, batteries, hydrogen, and of course, capital market considerations. With stocks in this space demonstrating such tremendous volatility, investors need a steady navigator at the wheel to understand the terrain. So we're fortunate to welcome back Colin Rush for this discussion. Thanks, Jane. Thrilled to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. Now, most of you remember Colin Rush is the Managing Director and the Senior Research Analyst and the head of Oppenheimer's Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization franchise. Colin has over 15 years' experience in this field. He's had a front row seat in the discoveries and investments that are driving shareholder performance. So again, Colin, I'm glad you're here. It's always a pleasure, Jane. Let's get started with the market and stocks because it's been a little nuts. When I started thinking about having a reprise episode with you, I looked at the stock around three weeks ago, and we were talking a very different story than where we're at today. Tesla was down sharply. It's now close to flat today. A bunch of the emerging growth names are still down. Ford and GM are up sharply. So can you make sense of this for us and tell us what you think the stock performance is telling us about market perceptions? Absolutely. I think at, uh, at root, and we're going to talk about something that is near and dear to you with uh, with the, the bond market. And one of the things that we've been watching closely with these names is really the, the cost of capital. Uh, at yeah. the end of the day, most of these technologies tend to be higher capex technologies with lower maintenance and fuel costs. And so your, your total cost of uh, capital ends up really impacting the cost of ownership. And so not only are we seeing um, the 10-year impact, the you know beta in the market and volatility around equities, we're also seeing that really impact where folks are borrowing against, uh, against these assets. 
And there's a couple of things happening in the market right now. One, we've seen um, you know bond rates go higher since January, which is impact uh, you know high growth, high beta equities. Uh, and then the second thing is really we've seen spreads narrow. And net, what we're seeing in the in the market is that actually we've seen an increase in in actual borrowing costs, you know, on the order of 25 to 35 basis points for a lot of our companies. But the the reality is it's not been a huge huge delta. It's really been more of a sentiment driven delta. And so when we look at what's going on with the stocks, there's been a lot of volatility around the broader market, but the actual underlying fundamentals remain very, very strong. Okay, well, that makes sense. But let's talk about some of the variables that I mentioned in the introduction. You know, we got walloped in Texas with this storm, and we saw what an unreliable grid can do. And that's very pertinent to this space. So can you talk about infrastructure? And I know Texas is unto itself, but can you talk about the infrastructure concerns that we have with this with this group? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question and it's a big opportunity and there's a lot of work to do. So as we look at infrastructure, and let's just talk about the electrical infrastructure uh, of, of the country, there's been an underinvestment over any number of decades, which is well documented. Mm-hmm. But within the power infrastructure, we're looking at three major trends. One, the move towards more distributed power. Secondly, the increased need for resilience, which the, the Texas experience you know, really highlights for everybody. And then the third is the move towards increased renewables. So you have a bit more intermittency on the network, include more solar and more wind and, and other uh, other types of renewables. And so all in, you know, as, as we look at this, you know, you really think about the grid needing to be balanced and stable and, and how do you augment that? You know, there's major opportunities for stationary energy storage. Also, uh, a number of the different technologies that help manage voltage and volatility around individual sites within the within the network. And the Texas experience was just, you know, kind of a once a century sort of uh, weather event that normal asset owners wouldn't have prepared for. But certainly, wind turbines and solar systems have, you know, been uh, out in the field for decades in very inclement weather in northern climates and have been weatherproofed and operate actually quite effectively in those environments. And so, this was really an element of preparedness that the Texas really experienced around the network and certainly some of their, their water infrastructure as well. And so as we think about it, I think it's it just bringing awareness to some of those needs and, and some of that risk management that folks have gotten a little bit, you know, I think a little bit careless with in, in various parts of the world, including the U.S. But you think that's manageable? So, you know, listen, the grid was not really built with resiliency in mind. And as we enter this new phase with all these new demands, is that one of the variables that you're really concerned about looking ahead? You know, I'd actually disagree with you about the grid being built not for resilience. I think okay. at, at core, you know, the, the grid was built to be on all the time, you know, and, mm-hmm. and to be reliable. Uh, and so the way that's been managed historically is by um, overbuilding the network to uh, to serve the power needs. It's really, you know, trying to deliver the last electron on the hottest day of the year when everybody's running their air conditioners. And that's mm-hmm. how the, the infrastructure has been sized. As the grid gets more complex, your mitigation strategies around making sure that it's ready to go when you, when you need it um, have to change. And so what it, what it is, is they're taking an old strategy and trying to apply it to um, a new environment. And that doesn't make sense. And so when we look at companies like American Superconductor that has a lot of voltage management technologies. That's very, very important. Stationary energy storage, um, you know, that we're seeing folks like Tesla implemented at large scale on the utility scale side. 
or uh, like NTAs with distributed solar plus storage, that ends up being, you know, really important in terms of stabilizing the grid and, and how it operates. And so you, I think you have to just update your strategies around resilience, but I think the core tenet of the, the grid being, you know, needing to be a re- reliable asset is still very much in place. It's just a, a slow moving industry that needs to get modernized. Right. And you touched on solar and storage there. And I know, you know, you're continuing to see the cost curve come down, but there's definitely still some limits on the solar side of the equation. So can we talk a few minutes about some of the advances and challenges in solar and storage? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think there's a couple of things historically. First was the cost structure on on the actual cells and, and uh, the, the battery packs. And mm-hmm. we've seen that change dramatically in, in just the last few years, uh, really seeing the, the cost structure, um, you know, come down on the order of 70 to 80 percent, which makes wow. energy storage extremely affordable and really effective for many, many applications. You know, we would put it at about a third of the homes could go off grid by themselves with solar plus storage in the U.S. Uh, and that number is increasing very quickly, particularly with the lower cost capital. And so there's, there's a big addressable market. The second piece of this that I think is important is around functionality. And we're mm-hmm. looking at um, the ability to do grid formation in a dynamic way. And so if you think about, you know, islanding your your house off the grid in the event of some some volatility, that needs to be a dynamic functionality. And that's one of the areas where we see a lot of innovation from companies like Enphase that that do have that commercialized in in the market and, and other folks trying to catch up with that sort of functionality to really be able to, you know, make your your home its own grid and continue to function even in the event of um, some volatility around the network. And we're seeing that happen also kind of along the grid is that that controls and monitoring functionality being really important as we go forward. And when you talk about additions to the grid and we talk about solar, another area that I know you've spent a good amount of time on is hydrogen, which I've always understood to be a pretty limited market, um, but I know the growth is there. Can we talk about advances and growth in, in the hydrogen market? Of course, and it's something that is important and exciting. And I want to start at a, a very high level because I think some of the, the things that we're watching really clearly right now are companies making commitments to being at net zero by 2040. So the Paris Climate Accord is requiring countries to get mitigated uh, emissions levels by 2050. Um, there, are, there are many corporations, and it's about 1,600 that have done that now with a $25 trillion in market cap, net zero emissions by 2040. And what's happening is they look through their operations and look through where they can uh, get to those areas. There's some big things going on both in the power markets, but also in the transportation market. And hydrogen, in our view, is really where you can um, really be the connective tissue for those two markets at the end of the day. Certainly, there's some of that that can happen with energy storage. But when you think about the weight considerations in trucks, hydrogen makes a lot of sense uh, just because it's lighter weight than than batteries. And so for d- certain duty cycles, hydrogen makes a lot more sense. Secondarily, mm-hmm. you can take um, you know excess power and turn it into hydrogen as both a storage you know entity, uh, which then can be used uh, later as power or uh, out into the transportation market. And so you can actually use hydrogen uh, electrolysis um, you know as a, a real uh, stability and kind of buffer for the entire um, you know power network into the energy complex through the transportation uh, industry. And so for us, hydrogen is an important fuel in understanding which technologies have leading cost structures and which businesses are approaching this from a strategic perspective and in uh, you know, an effective way is, is really crucial. And that's why we've been constructive on plug power, that they are actually addressing all of these issues from a single platform 
and uh, doing it on a global basis in Asia, North America, and Europe uh, along the value chain. So Plug Power is a major player there. But And forgive my ignorance if I'm wrong, but I thought that hydrogen right now, the rollout and and fueling or servicing stations was only really available in the U.S. and California. How are we going to roll this out across the country and increase that accessibility? Yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of the, the current state, that it's, it's very early days on this. And so some of the, the first uh, large-scale green hydrogen facilities are just being built right now. This is going to happen, in our view, where hydrogen gets rolled out as a logistics fuel, um, more than consumer fuel over the next five years. And it's going to be in central locations where trucks run and it can be easy to manage. So a lot of that is going from warehouse to warehouse, also from other point-to-point sort of opportunities. That also allows uh, the hydrogen industry to leverage off of centrally located power plants like solar plants to produce the hydrogen. And so you do have a fully net zero supply chain with both the energy that turns into hydrogen over time coming from a renewable source and then having a clean burning fuel in those vehicles. But that's going to happen, I think, over the next couple of years with the first facilities being built and then pick up momentum from there. Great. Yeah, I love that. You know, the title of this whole thing is Let's Talk Future. So I love that because we're really on the brink of seeing that become a reality. Um, Let's segue a little bit to batteries. And there's a bunch of different issues there. But just quite simply, when you look at most forecasts for electric vehicle demand and what percentage that will be of all cars by 2030, you're talking about pretty significant growth to maybe 18% of all car sales. Well, the increased demand for batteries on that kind of growth would be something like eight times what factories can currently produce. So that's a pretty big disconnect. Are you worried about the ability for companies to produce enough batteries to meet the demand? Uh, so we're seeing folks make the commitment and see those numbers that, you know, those that sort of opportunity for 8x growth, which we think is real as you scale up to, to higher penetration rates for vehicles and move not just into passenger vehicles, but into the middle market, or I'm sorry, middle mile, along with medium duty vehicles, there's a, there's a very, very large opportunity. Uh, and so there is going to need to be a, a full scale up on the supply chain to support that. That includes not only battery factories, but also the basic materials uh, that go into those batteries and lithium being one of the the key elements that um, we think is really the long, uh, long form attempt at this point, um, given the fact that it takes five to seven years to you know, ramp up a greenfield lithium mine. Let's stay on that for a moment, because I've heard about plans for some new lithium mines in the U.S., but is that a scarce material or are we uh, going to be able to meet the demand? So the, the reality is that, that lithium is not a scarce material, finding it in high concentrations uh, where it's easily mineable is a harder endeavor than, than just finding lithium. It's, it's one of the most common elements on the planet. So it's really a matter of making the commitments to, to go and mine it in, uh, in a cost-effective way that serves these markets. And what we're seeing so far is that, you know, there were some big plans around EV rollout, you know, instigated some some growth in the lithium mining industry. And it was um, not necessarily a head fake, but it was just a little bit early. Uh, and so some okay. of those mines have been not fully mothballed, but kind of paused uh, for, for a period of time. And as we start to see EV demand pick up uh, and, real, and actually production pick up here, starting with China 
in the last couple of years, we're starting to see those mines get back to a place where uh, supply demand is in a balanced way. And we think that happens this year with, you know, a seeing a supply constraint starting next year. And so in, in the last couple of months, we've seen a number of lithium mines really start to, to re-ramp and get ready for the growth in, you know, 2023, four, five, and six. And that's the the sort of thing that we need to see, you know, now to see the, the supply become available, you know, four or five years from now. Um, but we think there's going to be an awful lot of development of different lithium sources over the next several years uh, to meet the need in the back half of this decade before we really start to see a meaningful number of batteries get recycled, which we think really starts in earnest in, you know, 28, 29, and 30. Mm-hmm. So do you think that we might see some shortages in the 22, 23 time frame, or do you think we're going to be able to handle that because demand's just going to be ramping up then? I, I think we are going to see, like any industry, when you're going through the early growth phases, some, some teething exercises. That's going to happen on any number of components, and certainly we think that's also going to happen with batteries. At the same time, we're seeing engineers work very, very aggressively on figuring out how to get more energy and, and more power out of the same basic materials. And we're seeing any number of things happen, like including uh, silicon in the anode side of the battery, uh, which ends up extending the range and, and reducing the weight on, on those batteries, which gets more power and more energy out of that same amount of lithium. And so as, as we move forward, uh, you know, I've learned very acutely not to bet against the engineers uh, when you're looking at an early industry in terms of their ability to meet new performance and cost targets. And we think that happens. But even with those sorts of engineering advances and, and technology advances, we are expecting there to be a, a fairly tight supply chain around the basic materials as we transform into a, you know, kind of an electricity-centric transportation market. And who are the big players there? I know Tesla is big in batteries, but... Yeah, Tesla's big other- in batteries. You know, the yeah. other major companies are CATL in China, which is their leapfrogging with BYD as the largest uh, battery manufacturers. The other major players are also based in Asia with Panasonic, which has been a partner for Tesla. Tesla's also working with CATL now. And then you look at LG and, and Samsung SDI as the other major players. Okay. I think there's there's a number of startups that are trying to enter into the market with newer technologies. And we think at least a couple, if not more, of those folks end up succeeding, you know, given some of the innovation we're seeing in the private side. Okay. Well, you just said the word startups. And so I think I'm going to have to introduce part of our conversation about valuation. You know, we've seen a lot of startups in the electric vehicle space. We've seen SPACs just growing. You know, Lucid is doing a deal at a very large valuation and hasn't begun production yet. Let's talk a little bit about valuation, capital markets, access to capital fueling the growth of these startups. How are you looking at that? So there's there's a lot of ways to think about this. So we have some extremely large um, end markets when you look at the power markets, transportation markets, trillions of dollars of annual revenue. And so there's some very big opportunities. There's industries that have been slow to, to move into newer technologies. And so they're ripe for dis- disruption. And we've seen that happen with Tesla and other folks. And so there's a lot of speculation happening in the market. Same time, we're seeing you know real viable technologies that are going to disrupt this market come into, uh, into the public realm. And there's going to be some real significant winners. And there's going to be some, you know, some bankruptcies. And so as we look at, you know, evaluating um, these companies, there's a handful of things that we look at. The first is really looking at technology viability and roadmaps from a cost reduction and a performance perspective, along with the maturity of that technology. And so one of the things that we do look at is revenue. You know, if, if customers mm-hmm. are willing to pay for uh 
pay for these products or pay for these services, you know, that's a validation on the market. We also look at, you know, what those roadmaps look like and, and whose hands they're in, right? So uh, management teams end up being critically important in our view in terms of navigating some of these early stages as you try to develop new technology and commercialize it. Those tend to be very uh, challenging, you know, business problems, and um, not everybody's very good at it. And, and so we take a very, very close look at the management teams and uh, the corporate cultures that are being built in these organizations. And then there, there's a basic organizational maturity that we need to look at, particularly for a lot of these SPACs, because you know, not being public now for an early stage company and not having a fully funded business model has become a real disadvantage. And so an awful lot of private companies are coming into the public markets purely to have access to capital, to be uh, you know, taken seriously by their potential customers. And so that sort of rush to the market and you know, people can cut corners. And so if you don't have your, your proper controls in place, you don't have strong boards and you don't have um, you know, strong management teams with a bit of depth, that can be a problem. And so we do look at that organizational maturity and the preparedness for these companies to be uh, public companies and, and go through the rigor and the discipline of being a public company, which is not a particularly easy endeavor at the end of the day. So given all of that, and that's a really, really helpful checklist of things that investors can stay focused on to make their investment decisions. But um, as we talk future, which is what we're supposed to do here, and as you counsel investors investing in this space over the next few years, where are you advising that folks focus their energy? So we tend to like you know platform plays, companies that have developed meaningful technology that has at least one you know identified and commercial application. Uh, and the opportunity to uh, move adjacently from that technology platform. And so within the SPAC market, um, we've been involved in two that we've started writing coverage on, first Belladyne and now ChargePoint. And both those companies have helped innovate and and really invent technologies for their their given end markets and then are moving into adjacent uh, opportunities in terms of moving from a hardware-centric model that has real differentiation and migrating into uh, software and services uh, type businesses where they can grow recurring revenue streams and, and maintain a stickiness with their customers. That's one area that we're really focused on. And then we've got some of the other public companies that we still um, like a, a great deal, even at some pretty healthy valuations, given the differentiated technology. We've talked about Plug. We've talked about uh, Tesla. We've talked about Enphase as uh, companies in their individual end markets that have really differentiated technology that they're then leveraging into low-cost capital and growth into adjacent markets. You know, a couple of the other companies that we really like, companies like Trimble, which is really digitizing um, wide portions of the industrial complex and um, construction transportation, uh, infrastructure, and some of their geospatial technology in addition to the ag market, as well as you know, a company like Amaris, which is really pioneering synthetic biology and taking renewable basic materials, which is, is sugar right now, and turn it into different ingredients and different products. And so they really are the leading platform for commercializing renewable chemicals, and they have an AI system that hands down years ahead of anybody else and trying to attempt that. So those sorts of platform plays that have good technology and good management hands that have adjacent growth opportunities are the, the way we think investors are best served to catch the growth, but then also de-risk their portfolios in the meantime. Right. Well, it's certainly a fascinating and eventful 
varied group of companies that you just mentioned. And once again, we um, I got to end with yet another pun. We we appreciate your steady hand on the wheel and your ability to help navigate because this is a very active group of companies. So thank you for your expertise and your time. And I am sure we'll do this again soon. I can't wait, Jane. Thanks so much. Don't miss the next episode of Let's Talk Future as we explore a variety of topics important to every kind of investor by bringing our firm's financial thought leaders directly to you. Hit the subscribe button today.